Well, the book of 1 Samuel is, um, it's, it's action-packed. It actually would make a really good show. I mean, you'd be enthralled. I think you'd be hooked uh, for, for most of you that like shows. Um, they are, these episodes are full of uh, mystery, um, tension, violence, um, fights, betrayals, love, marriages, some that work out, some that don't work out, um, kingdoms, prophets, priests, um, friendships, gains, losses, victories, and tragedies. And as we move through those stories, we're going to feel some of them are really familiar to us, and we're going to feel that pain, and we're going to feel that sorrow, we're going to feel that joy. will misapply those stories to our lives and actually not come out of 1 Samuel getting what we're supposed to get. And exhibit A is 1 Samuel 1 in the story of Hannah. Now, in the story of Hannah, we, have, we track with a, a woman who is exemplary, godly, uh, unlike most people in her time and among her people. Uh, but she's experiencing a particular point of distress, of pain, of anguish. She's harassed for it, and she takes that anguish to the Lord, and the Lord provides a gracious answer. Okay, that's kind of how the story tracks. Now, as we look at it, there's a sense in which we can immediately think about our own lives and see how our lives can kind of track with that pattern sometimes. And that's okay, but if we stop it there and don't see what really is going on with the story, then we miss what God has for us in 1 Samuel. So here's what we're going to do. Let's go through the story. I'll pause every couple sentences or so just to kind of unpack and make some comments, bring some clarity to the story. Let's crawl down into the text, into the actual narrative, and figure out what's happening in the story, all of chapter 1, okay? Chapter 2 is marvelous. I almost included it for today, but that's Hannah's prayer. We'll do that uh, next week. So here we're going to just get the setup. Uh, that produces that prayer next week. Let's go through it, see the characters, see the layout, see what's happening here, and just try to at least understand on surface level what's the story about. And then from there, we can figure out what are we actually supposed to take away from this. Okay, so if you haven't turned there already, please do 1 Samuel chapter 1, right after the book of Ruth. This is after Judges, which is important. But let's begin right at the top of chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll make our our way through the narrative together. It says, There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. There's the first problem right there. It's already not going great. This was never God's idea. God never recommended multiple wives. And it wasn't as common as you might think. This means Elkanah was, uh, he was up there. He had some authority probably. He had some clout. He had some money. Not just everybody had multiple wives. But the name of one, uh, the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, most at least the commentators that I've read seem to think that because Hannah's name is first, she was probably the first wife. Now, why in the world would you pick up a second 
wife? Well, we can probably think of multiple reasons that, that are at least cultural to them back then, but maybe the primary reason is given to us right there in the text. Hannah was barren, Peninnah wasn't. So Peninnah provided children for Elkanah. And this probably had to be hard for Hannah. Nothing probably had to be said for this to be difficult for Hannah. And it probably didn't help that Peninnah's name means pearl. I mean, she is this prize for Elkanah in the sense that she's able to produce these children for him and continue this lineage. Remember that long first verse we just read? The son of, the son of, the son of. Lineage is everything, and Hannah can't play a part in that. Verse two, or verse three. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city, this is Elkanah, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. These are bad dudes. We're going to see them in a couple of weeks. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, uh, some, some translations might say the best portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So maybe in part because Hannah was his first wife, he's the one that, she's the one that he chose to be the, the matriarch of the lineage in the first place, but it didn't work. And maybe in part because he feels bad that she couldn't do that. So he, he bestows a kind of favor on her. Um, and Peninnah gets these gifts, and so do her kids, and so does their family. And he just gives her one thing. He feels bad, so he gives her the best portion, the double portion. He, he sees the issue. And he's a godly man. He's coming to sacrifice to the Lord. It's, it's a part of their built-in routine. And then in verse 6, it gets spicy. And uh, Penina, what do you call her? Her, uh, it's not an in-law. <laughs> her her wife, co-wife, like what do you call that? All right, sister wife. <laughs> well, this author just says, look, rival. Let's just be honest. Let's just be straight, rival. There's no way to do it in a non-rival way, the whole multiple spouse thing. And so in verse 6, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb, Hannah's womb. So it went on year by year. I, I think what it means there is this provoking and this grievous. They, they probably didn't live together under the same roof. Elkanah's probably not that dumb. But when they would travel together as a big group to sacrifice to the Lord, here we go, Penina and number one and number two and my number three, calling their names out loud while Hannah just got her bag. And as they're approaching the, the tabernacle together to make these sacrifices, that's probably a prime opportunity for Peninnah to rib her about the fact that she's got all these kids. And, uh, wow, must have been easy for you to pack this morning. Just you, huh? Doing it intentionally to, to harass her, to provoke her, to irritate her, the text says. And so then it says, it went on year by year, as it says, often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. She's clearly hurt by it. And the text doesn't poke fun at Hannah for being hurt by it. It assumes you understand 
that that is a hurtful thing and that Hannah wept to the point she was grievous to the point where she wouldn't eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, "Um, Hannah, why do you weep? I mean, he knows why she's weeping. But he doesn't understand the extent. I get it, but you're still weeping and you're not eating. And look at his reasoning. Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? You can understand that Elkanah feels for her, but she's so despondent, so checked out, she won't eat at the table, she won't join the family meals. He feels like he's lost his wife. I can understand the pain of having no sons, but aren't I even more, more to you than that? Or did you only marry me to have a son? You can feel his pain as well. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So she's off by herself now and she approaches the temple and she's, she's praying, weeping, praying. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So what's happening here is Hannah's deciding in her distress and in her grief and in her anguish, she, she lifts up a desperate prayer where she makes a vow. Now, in the Old Testament, vows were allowed, never outright commanded by God for everyone to do. He was, you remember back in the book of Numbers, he's like, here's what y'all have to do. And then I know some of you are going to want to do it a little extra. You don't have to, but if you wanted to do something extra, here's some vows you could take. And the ultimate vow really was the, the Nazarite vow, where a person would uh, not touch any dead corpse of any kind would not drink anything from the vine, so no, no wine, um, and then no uh, haircuts. <laughs> and so I think this, you know, no razor will touch his head. I think she's saying, I'll make him, like, I'll give him a Nazarite vow, wholly dedicated to the Lord, and he'll abstain from these things uh, and will serve you. Serve you all the days of his life. He'll be your servant. So she's not instructed to make a vow. An angel doesn't tell her to make a vow, but the Lord uses this to prompt this vow out of her because he's going to use it, as we'll see in a moment. But she comes in this desperation and says, I will, if you give me a son, he'll be yours. He won't even be mine. He'll be yours. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only lips moved and her voice was not heard therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman just a little bit of a comical scene if you've ever seen someone praying or their lips are moving but they're not saying anything out loud they're just they're praying now we live in such a dark time where even though it's the temple and this is where you worship and pray what is the first thing that comes to Eli's dorky mind she must be drunk What is she doing? 
The lips are moving. She, she's weeping. She's crying. Something probably happened and she's been drinking all night and now she's over here. Maybe that was commonplace at the time. Drunk people at the temple. It is a dark time. Not a lot of spiritual light. And the last thing he would think is that somebody actually is praying at the temple. The first thing he would assume is that she's drunk. And so Eli, verse 14, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I haven't been pouring anything in. I've only been pouring my soul out. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And so you see all this stacking of different words. She is provoked. She's irritated. She, is, uh, she has great anxiety. She has, she's vexed. Then Eli answered, verse 17, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Even though Eli is not a good priest, he's, he's actually a, a terrible priest, um, he's not a totally unspiritual man. Okay, he made a mistake. He thought she was drunk. Now he takes her word for it, and he actually conveys a blessing. And then Hannah, however she figures it out, takes that blessing to be legit. Because she gets up, cleans her face, and she's like, all right, I'm good now. So she, she, she got some sense that that's what she needed. And he gives it to her. So, verse 18, and she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So his name means something like that. I have asked him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. And now she's got the baby, right? But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Think about that. Now, you would, you would wean a child up until they're about three years old, if I understand these things correctly. Um, we maybe wouldn't call that a weaning age today, but then at that time, that was about three years. So she's keeping him for three years, and then what? She'll probably only ever see him at the yearly approach to the tabernacle. And probably even then have to share him with everybody else. He's in service. That's, that's the high time of the year, right? She's not going to see him again. She's not going to get to spend time with him. But she's okay with that. This is what she asked of the Lord, and the Lord is giving it. And she's going to not travel with them while the baby's young. But she knows eventually she's going to give him to the Lord in the service of the temple Verse 23, and that's, she, he's just going to be there forever. Elkanah, verse 23, her husband said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, 
She took him up with her along with a a three-year-old bull. That's probably better translated three bulls, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. Remember the lady you thought was drunk? Here's my kid. Verse 27, for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So she doesn't, by lent, she doesn't mean, you know, for a little while. As good as done. And he worshiped the Lord there. Who did? Probably Samuel. I think it's, it's getting to the point, uh, driving home that point that Samuel served the Lord there, worshiping him and facilitating the worship of others as well. So there's a story. It's a heartwarming story. You are happy for her. Uh, you're glad that she got her request. You're glad that the Lord gave her grace to bring her out of this anguish. And as we look at this passage, it's, it's easy to see a normal pattern there where we see, okay, somebody's in pain, someone's in anguish, they're, they're in great anxiety, and they cast their anxiety before the Lord, and the Lord comes through and provides this answer, isn't God great? Yes, God is great. But the issue, the problem with that is how do we apply that to our lives? You might say, hey, whenever you're childless, pray. Please don't try that on someone who you know, who yearns for a child, wants to have children, and hasn't been able to have children. Are you really going to go up to them like, hey, have you tried, I don't know, praying? I mean, if they're a believer, they'd be like, what are you, an idiot? I pray about this all the time. So is that what we take away from this? When you're in a situation where you're childless, pray and the Lord will bling, supply you the child that you've been waiting for. You might say, well, no, that's too simplistic. She made a vow. Okay, but where do you go with that? So now you're not saying, hey, have you tried prayer? You're saying, hey, have you tried making a vow in your prayer? Oh, like what? Well, just dedicate the baby up at the service. Ask Pastor Lucas to hold the baby for a second. And do a dedication service. And if you promise that you'll do that, then maybe the Lord will give you. Well, that's a, that's a big maybe. People have babies all the time and don't dedicate their kids. And they still have babies. Is this a guarantee? Is this here to help a person who's childless? I think in one On one level, yes, in the sense that whatever our distress or whatever our anguish, we can take that to the Lord. And that scripture sees that as anguish, as great anxiety. So if you're tempted to downplay and go, well, at least I don't have cancer. Yeah, at least you don't have cancer. But it's still painful to be in a place where you want to have kids and you're unable to have kids. That is painful. So I just want to pause there a second and recognize that pain and not just brush past it really fast. And I think the rest of us would do well to... um, for our hearts to bleed for people in that situation. And for those of us who have children to thank God daily, right? That he's blessed us with children. Children are a blessing of the Lord, no doubt. But I don't think that's where we're supposed to 
go with this. I don't think this is a passage on the importance of dedicating your children. I don't think this is a passage that, uh, on the importance of making a vow in order to get what you want from God. I don't, I'm not sure that's what's happening. I'm not sure what, that what Hannah's doing is, hey, God, here's the deal, all right? You give them to me, and I'll give them to you. Because she already serves the Lord no matter what. She's going to serve the Lord no matter what. So I don't, she's not coming to God like, hey, I'm really ticked at you, but I'll be okay with you if you do this for me and I'll do this for you. I don't, I don't think that's what she's saying. I think what she's saying is, I want to demonstrate to you that I don't want this for selfish reasons. I want to demonstrate to you that I want this for reasons that are bigger than myself, reasons that are important to your bigger plan, reasons that are more important to the state of Israel right now than to my own household. And so if you give this child to me, I'll demonstrate that to you by committing him to your service and you use him to do bigger picture stuff. This request is not just about this small picture. Didn't Moses pray like that? He appeals to God's desire to glorify himself. When God is really ticked with Israel and tells Moses, you know what, Moses, I'm going to wipe out Israel and I'm going to start over with you. Now, be honest with yourself. If that were you, if it were me, I'd be like, okay, wow. Thank you. That's amazing. So we'll start over. And now I'm Abraham. What does Moses do? The humblest person that ever lived, right? Scripture tells us. Moses said, don't do that. Because you know what people will say about you? They'll say about you, one minute it's Abraham, the next minute it's Moses. You brought them out of Egypt for what? To kill them in the desert. Don't let people say that about you. You know what would be more awesome than that? That even though you brought them out and they're ungrateful for it, you still brought them through. You still worked with them. You still gave them what they needed to be the people that you rescued for your name, for your glory. And I think what Hannah's doing here is not, let's make a deal, God. I think what Hannah's doing is trying to demonstrate to God that her prayer request isn't just, I want kids. It's bigger than that. And I want to demonstrate that to you by showing he's your kid. You do what you want with him. You make him what you want to make him for the sake of your people that come and worship at the tabernacle for the sake of Israel, and I'll bring him into your court. That, that changes things a little bit. Because now, when we think about our point of pain, whether it's childlessness or something else, our immediate instinct is to take it to the Lord and go, please remove this from me because I'm uncomfortable. Please take this away from me because it bothers me. This is, this is hurting my life. And what Hannah's doing is she's taking that request and she's bringing it up a level and going, how does this play into your plan? So let's, let's pause that for a second and back up to see what this story is. What is this story doing in the greater narrative of Scripture? Why is this story here? If it's not to help childless people specifically, what is it really doing in this passage? Well, the real problem in this story is not Hannah's barrenness and Hannah being harassed by her rival. The real problem in the story is Israel's barrenness and their being harassed by their rivals. Right? Who are their prime rivals at this point in history? Anybody? 
The Philistines. Yeah, over and over and over, right? That big battle between David and Goliath, the giant Philistine. When does that happen? That's this book. Tune in. Right? Who are one of the main antagonists in the book of Judges, which is basically the prequel to First and Second Samuel? Judges is like part one or maybe the prequel. And then First and Second Samuel is the follow-up movie, okay? The Philistines over and over again. They harass the Israelites. And that's what David finds when he shows up. Israelites are being harassed, mocked, and he's like, isn't anyone going to stand up to this Philistine? So this story is taking place in a broader story about how Israel isn't producing anyone worthy to lead them. They're barren. So you come out of this book of the Judges. Why are they called judges? They're not really kings, but they're leaders. And they're not judges like the black robe with the gavel where they decide cases. It, it means they, they take the law of God, apply it to the land, and say, hey, guys, we're going to live this law out, and this is how God is going to protect us from the Philistines and anybody else who would harass us. This is how we're going to do it. And the judge, right, would lead Israel. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, or remember we went through it a few years ago. It's probably been like five years already. Uh, but we've got it on, on the recordings if you want to check it out. But Israel goes through basically uh, seven big cycles in that book. Okay? And here's the pattern. Israel's harassed by, by, by their neighbors. Okay? Uh, God's presence isn't there. They're experiencing pain, anguish, and they cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a judge. The judge goes to battle and does miraculous things oftentimes, okay, and leads them to victory, then there's peace in the land, there's protection on the borders, right? There's worship again, and then it declines again. And the lack of worship, the greatness of the anxiety, the greatness of the vexation of the people is worse than in the beginning of the first cycle. So what, is God, what happens? They cry out to the Lord. He raises up another judge, and he brings them out of that valley to another mountaintop peace, protection, defeat the enemies, miracles. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's amazing. Remember Shamgar defeated all these people, not with a sword, not a spear, an ox goad, the stick that you poke the ox with. He just killed a bunch of people with that. It's like one line in judges. Oh yeah, that was Shamgar. Is Shamgar so great? No, God is so great that he could do that, right? Samson defeating people with a jawbone. You're like, wow, Samson's great. No, God is great. Samson's an idiot. He's using people despite themselves, despite their weaknesses. And in Samson's case, and the reason why I say that is because he was, he was obstinately disobedient. He dishonored his parents. He drug other people into his messes. And rather than doing what he was supposed to do, he ran in the opposite direction. But God used it anyway. Now that's like the, 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 the last, end, toward the end of the cycle. That's how bad it is that you've got this guy causing havoc, murdering people all over the place. Okay, he owes people garments because of the stupid bet that he made. And to get those garments, rather than buying them or even stealing them, he kills 30 people, steals their garments, packs them up, and says, here's your garments. Okay, he's a murderer. Samson's not a good guy, but God used them as a judge. So when you're moving through the book of Judges, they have this, they cry out to God, please help us, get us out of this. He raises a judge, he gets them out, and then they go back down, just like Israel. Please get us out of Egypt. He gets them out. We hate you, we're worshiping a golden calf. That's why you have that episode between Moses and God, God going, I'm going to wipe them out, man. Okay? So up and down, up and down, up and down, all the way through the book of Judges, and the author of the book of Judges keeps telling you, 
okay, over and over again, the people did what was right in their own eyes. They did whatever they wanted to do. And then that tells us that four times. And twice out of those four times tells us why they did that. It's because they had no king. Then the book of Judges ends and you're supposed to go, man, they need a leader. They need someone to lead them, okay? And the book of 1 Samuel opens up. You just finished that last movie. You got your popcorn, you're sitting down, you got your tickets for this next movie now, and you're ready to hear the answer. And what are you hoping the answer to be? What does Israel need? What did we learn from the first movie? They need a leader. They need someone to lead them and guide them, and none of this up and down stuff. They need someone to just take them on an upward trajectory and get them out of this constant cycle of I'm sorry, God, and then you're worse, and then I'm sorry, God, and then you're worse, because that's what we're like. Without someone saving us out of that cycle, leading us out of that, we just go in downward spirals, and each spiral is lower than the previous. So we don't read the book of Judges about Israel and go, man, Israel is really hard-hearted. Yeah, we are. We are. So you open up the book of 1 Samuel, you get to the first chapter, and then you get some familiarity with something that's been happening in other places in Scripture. You've got a barren woman who's not able to have kids, and then she vows that this kid is going to be a Nazarite. Hmm. When's the last time we saw that? Judges. Because Samson's parents couldn't have babies either. And the angel had to come and say, hey, guess what? God's going to give you a child and it's going to be miraculous because obviously you can't have babies. And everyone's going to go, what in the world? How did this happen? It's because God did it. But he's going to be a Nazarite and God's going to use him to deliver his people. So now, now, Hannah goes to the temple and she's like, look, I'm barren. The people are barren. But if you give me a son, I'll make him a Nazarite and I'll put him in the temple. I won't even presume to be such a good mother that I can parent him to the caliber that he needs to be the person you need to lead this people. You do it. I'll I'll send him to the temple as soon as he's weaned. I don't think Hannah's just going, "Ah, you know, here's the deal, God. I I think she's, God is using her barrenness to pick up where we left off in Judges. The people are a barren people, and so God has to miraculously miraculously bring someone out that's going to lead them because that's what they really need. So Hannah's smaller request, I don't have children and that hurts me, which is true, becomes a bigger request by going, but Israel is in trouble and that hurts all of us. Does Does that make sense? She's taking her personal narrative and lifting it up in that prayer request to this this bigger narrative. We all, we all have a, a certain kind of pain and anguish, which is we're not right with the Lord. We've got a dodo as a priest. His sons are completely corrupt, which we're going to see soon. Not today, but in a couple weeks. And so she's elevating her prayer to another level because I think she realizes that there's a bigger problem than her barrenness, and that bigger problem is the barrenness of God's covenant people. They're unable to produce anyone that can save them, anyone that can lead them, anyone that can bring them out of this. Another way to really help with this really quickly is how often the Bible uses the husband-wife imagery to stand in for God's relationship with his people. All right, those of you who've been here for a little while, you've, you've seen this, okay? This is why Paul in, in Ephesians tells the Ephesian Christians, remember back in Genesis, God created marriage? The reason why he did it 
is to provide an ongoing illustration of Christ and the church, Christ and his bride. Remember through the book of Revelation, the bridegroom is coming. And in the meantime, all of our trials, all of our difficulties are dressing us up and adorning us to be his bride. It's like we're, we're in front of the mirror for 2,000 years, getting dressed up and becoming what we're supposed to become so that he can receive his bride. That's Old Testament imagery. So throughout the Old Testament, God is like, hey, you're like my wife, but you're not being faithful. You want, you, rather than, than being different than the Philistines, you want to be like the Philistines. What did Samson want to do instead of taking them out? He wants to marry them, right? You're doing the opposite. I brought you out of Egypt so you can be different than Egypt. And one of the first things you do is make a golden calf and you're just as idolatrous as Egypt. You're supposed to be different, but you're cheating on me. You're, you're being an adulterous wife. So throughout the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as an adulterous wife and sometimes, like in Isaiah, a barren wife who's unable to produce what she's supposed to produce. She's unfaithful, and so therefore she's unfruitful. So here, we don't just have a random barren woman. We have scripture going, here's another picture of what we're like spiritually. We're unable to produce what we're supposed to produce. And God has to do it miraculously. So as we see that smaller story actually being an example of this much bigger, larger story, through the impossible birth of a deliverer, we are pointed to God's final answer, ultimate answer, to provide a leader that won't bring us into cycles anymore. Samuel is great, but he dies. And as much as Saul wants to bring him back from the dead. I can't wait to get to that episode. Samuel's brought back from the dead, a ghost, and tells Saul, why, why are you bringing me back? You shouldn't be bringing me back. I'm not God. Well, we need someone who doesn't die. And we also need someone who's not going to be corrupt, like Eli. So Eli's problem is he's, he doesn't handle his corrupt sons. And then Samuel's problem is, he sorry for the spoiler alert, he dies eventually, <laughs> right? He doesn't live forever. So what we need is a leader who's able to sustain that leadership through this miraculous birth. Now, when you read the, the barrenness to miraculous birth in Samson's story, and then you read this barrenness to miraculous birth in Hannah's story, it's hard to not see that pattern ultimately fulfilled in Mary's virginity being another impossible way to give birth and gives birth to this ultimate deliverer. And that ultimate deliverer fulfills the roles that are, we need to lead us. What are those roles? Just take First Samuel. The first role that we see is Eli, who's a what? He's a priest. This is the person whose function it is to go between you and God and Make sure that sacrifices are happening so that your sin can be taken care of. Then after Eli, you get Samuel, who basically takes over as the leader of Israel, and he's a prophet. What does a prophet do? The prophet's job is to make sure you know what God is saying. He brings to you the word of God so you know what to do. He goes between God and the people to make sure you have God's word. And then eventually Samuel anoints Israel's first what? king and that king is supposed to with the priest and the prophet be that military leader that makes sure that God's people are protected that there's peace 
that we're not infected with the syncretism of other cultures around us, that we keep what the prophet says with purity, that the temple is protected so that the sacrifice is protected. That's the role of the king. And Jesus Christ comes and fulfills all three of those, right? He, he perfectly fulfills all, each of those three offices so that Jesus is the perfect priest because he doesn't a- offer an animal as a sacrifice. What does he offer as a sacrifice? Himself. And even though, and this is, just think, that we've, we've heard this a million times for many of us as Christians, but just think about how mind-blowing this is. Even though he offers himself as a sacrifice, meaning he dies so that we can have communion with God, he lives. Well, Samuel didn't sacrifice himself and he died. Jesus sacrifices himself and in that sacrifice defeats death so that he never dies, meaning we have a forever priest. A forever priest who's not corrupt and won't die. Meaning you have access to God in a way where you don't have to have an up cycle because you've got a good leader and then a down cycle because your pastor died or somebody else. Jesus is the perfect priest. He's the perfect prophet. Why? Because he doesn't bring to you the word of God. He is the word of God. And then finally, he is the perfect king. As we saw in the book of Revelation, not only has he defeated death, what king could ever do that? He promises to return and wipe out all of wickedness fully and finally. Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king, also born from an impossible situation to rescue an impossible people. He pulls it off. So here's the ultimate meaning. We are a barren people because we can't produce our own leader. We can't be our own leader. We can't lead ourselves out of the ruts, out of the spiritual difficulties and the great vexations. And when the world harasses us, we have nothing to say. We can't say, well, we, are, we have these things. We, ha- we are... Uh, perfect people we're you know we're look how better we are than you we we don't have any of that to say we have no ammo but Jesus took mockery upon himself so that we could never be accused there's no accusation for those who are in Christ Jesus there's nothing to condemn us for not because we're perfect but because we're forgiven so we're above the harassment now they might still the world can throw us in jail can kill us but they can't they can't undo us This is why in Revelation we learn we're more than conquerors no matter how much we're harassed. So the ultimate problem is that we have this barrenness. We are harassed by the world, but that God provides our needed leader in Jesus Christ. So real quick, here's the application and we'll close. One, there are no accidents in life. Whatever pain you're experiencing, whatever difficulty you're experiencing, when I say it's the small story and not the big story, I'm not saying it's small. That's pain. And it might be rocking your world right now. You can be in a place of deep anguish and grief. And so I'm not saying, by saying that's the smaller storyline or your personal storyline, I'm not saying it's not important or hard or difficult. And, and we need to recognize that. But you can take it to the Lord because he's not up there. When in the Old Testament do you see God like, oh, Man, I I didn't see that one coming. Sorry. Man, he closes her womb, and it's his plan for her to get to that point where she expresses that prayer, and he's like, got it. Now I'm going to do it, and I'm going to show the world that I did it through a prayer of a woman who couldn't do it. God is in control, and he's not up there befuddled. 
So even if I don't get the specific answer I want, I can know that I can take things to him, knowing that he, he has the bigger picture, he has the bigger plan, and I can take things to him in prayer, as we should. Now, some people, they do go to the bottle, and they pour in. That's not what Christians do. We go to the Lord, and we pour out. We don't anesthetize pain with substance. We take our stuff, and we take it to the Lord, and trust him with it. Trust him with it. What if he doesn't answer in two days, three days? Give up and then go drink? No, no, no. You persist in faithfulness and bringing things to the Lord. The second thing I want to mention briefly is that all our prayers should find the kingdom of God as their context. The kingdom of God is the context for your prayers. We learn this in the Lord's Prayer, right? When the Lord taught his disciples to pray, before you get to that specific part of give me my daily bread, which is important. You need daily bread. You need something to sustain you today. That's a, a daily need. There's a need that you have. And Jesus is like, yeah, take that to the Lord. But after praying, your will be done. Right? Your will be done. So that when I'm praying for my smaller thing, I'm not losing sight of that bigger thing. How many of you, you know, you experience a job loss? And you're, you're praying, Lord, please, I didn't want to lose this job. And then... Something better comes. We had sort of a wave of that recently in our congregation. How many of you, you you love who you're married to today and you think back to a time when you literally prayed that this person wouldn't break up with you and now you're like, thank you, God, because then I wouldn't have my wife today, right? How many of you really wanted this house that didn't work out and then, I don't know, the house blew up or something? (laughs) You look back and in retrospect, you realize God was doing something better and you're glad that he didn't answer your prayer the way you wanted because the bigger picture was better, right? That's what Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer, and I think that's what we're learning here, that Hannah's got this point of pain, and she takes it to the Lord, and she's saying, I want you to do something for your bigger picture and not just answer me for the small picture. Your bigger picture is more important than the small picture. She may not have been able to see it with the clarity that we can see it as the Lord teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, but I think she saw the beginnings of it. I think she saw the pattern of it. And then the author is putting the story together for us so we can learn how to pray. I think this is teaching us how to pray. And so is uh, chapter 2. It teaches us how to pray. But it doesn't teach us when you're in trouble, make a deal with God, and then he'll give you the answer you want. That's not the lesson. The lesson is your little trouble, as painful as it is, is a sign of this bigger trouble that we're all in. We need a leader because we won't live in righteousness without one. And if we try to do that outside of a leader, if you're in here this morning and you that up and down that I talked about sounds like your life, you may not be shepherded by the Lord right now. You might just be making your own commitments, vowing, trying to vow your way to heaven. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But you haven't come into a relationship with a king who will lead you, a priest who will intercede for you, and a prophet who will deliver to you what God wants, his will for your life. That's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful to you for your persistent challenges from Scripture. As uh, difficult as our experiences might be, the different things that cause us pain and grief, the trials that we experience now, Lord, we want to bring them before you. And when we ask you for relief from those things, Uh, train us, Father, to contextualize all of those prayers in the kingdom of heaven.
and the desire to advance your will, that you would accomplish what you want to do, that the plan that we can't see, that we can't figure out, we don't see tomorrow, next week, next month. We don't see how this issue can tie into something else. And we don't always get the answer that we want, but we can trust that you will do the thing that is best for the advancement of your kingdom, the glorification of your name. And uh, we, we, we hold the hand of a Savior who intercedes for us constantly, without fail, without corruption, and without death. And now as we close in this song, Lord, we, we lean into that uh, intercession of our Savior, and we pray that you would receive this worship from sincere hearts, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you stand?